to the Christians, and many of whom were slaves in Philippi, you have access to a genuinely, truly abundant, blessed, happy, full life. You put the adjective that you want. The true blessed life is here that God's people is given the access by contemplation as well as prayer, as which you referenced before, to live a life of meaning in the present. This would have been transformative to the slave audience that he had, perhaps, or even to the ordinary person who was married and children, um, the person who was not a philosopher, who was not trained, who did not spend his time in contemplation. It's kind of like what the reformers did when they took the principles of the monastic orders and said, we as Christians ought to practice these principles in our everyday life. You see, Paul is saying that what was commonly believed to be reserved for a select few is attainable for the common person. And this is precisely because we have access to the God of peace through the Spirit who brings God near to us in Christ Jesus. We have the presence of God. So the question is, what are these virtues and how do they help us combat anxiety on a daily basis? Well, the first thing to note about this list of virtues is that it's not an exhaustive list. He does not have faith, hope, and love here, which is, uh, as uh, Thomas Aquinas, the great Christian philosopher, would call that the theological virtues. So it's not an exhaustive list. But nonetheless, these six virtues are particularly perceptive in helping the Philippian church overcome some of the struggles they face in their situation. We're not going to go through the entire list, but I'm going to give you just two of those or three of those that we can look at that can maybe give us an idea on how we can use this list as a a means for contemplation in our daily life and how that can be useful in helping us combat anxiety or fears in our daily lives. So the first on this list is what is true. Remember, look at that in verse 8, what Paul says, whatever is true. And now it's quite remarkable how often anxiety produced from thoughts or from fear results in thoughts that is not true. The essence of anxiety really is believing things that are not true. And so here Paul begins with this, whatever is true. Consider, for example, Jesus' approach to the topic of anxiety. Remember what Jesus said? In Matthew chapter 6, he took the basic principles of life, the basic things that we, the necessities of life every day, and had, and spoke about those daily things that we all need. Eat, drink, wear. The clothes that you will wear, the food that you eat, the water that you will drink, and the people's concern about those things on a daily things. That's exactly what the philosophers believe, that people are so concerned about these daily activities that they don't have time for contemplation. They work long hours, they fill up their days with schedules, they tend to their children, they don't have access to a quiet life of contemplation. Jesus knew this, and he combated those anxieties with the theology of who God is. Whatever is true. If you're worried about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, there's something you're not believing about who God is. Now, I don't know if anybody who 
has entered into the working world and has not worried about these very basic principles of life, what you will eat, drink, or wear. But look at what Jesus says. Therefore, do not be anxious, <laughs> saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Why? Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Your heavenly Father, the one who has adopted you, the one who has brought you into his family, the one who has given you access to his kingdom, he knows what you need. And so, as the Philippian church faced fears over persecutions or internal divisions, they were to meditate on what is true, but not just truth in itself as an ideal to strive towards, which is what the philosophers did, rather the truth of who God is. You see, this is exactly what sets Christian contemplation apart from general contemplation of the philosophers. Christian contemplation lives their lives in accordance with who God is. We don't just contemplate on the ideals of truth, beauty, goodness, but rather we contemplate who God is in relation to truth, beauty, and, God, and goodness. We correct our understanding of what we have been taught in the culture in accordance with what Scripture reveals about who God is. That is what this contemplation is calling us to do. And so it is for the rest of the list too, whether we're dealing with honor or justice and purity. Let's take, for example, justice, whatever is just. Once again, how does a Christian contemplate justice? Well, what happens when we are confronted with an unjust legal system? What happens when our hands are tied and we cry out for justice, but we will not receive it? How do we cope with the situation? And this was probably the case for many Christians in the ancient world, especially here in Philippi, who were slaves. They had no access to a judicial system on their behalf. So what do you do when you live in an unjust system and you can't get out of it? How does the nature of God as just judge comfort us in these trials? You see? I think back on the song sung by... American slaves, you know, those spirit, Negro spirituals, as we call them, the swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry us home, and how they land with hope, with eternal destiny. And some have criticized those in, in modern times as just like covering up or, or, or not fighting for liberation and those kinds of angles, and just hiding these things away, but but, but you've got to look at what they were doing. Believers were saying, we are in an unjust system, we can't get out of it, but our hope is that we trust in a just judge who will bring justice on our part in the, at a later time. We have a hope in a world that it's going to be rectified. We can have this even in our current situation. There are victories sometimes, like the Roe v. Wade decision right now, but how many of the other losses have we endured? And we can get so hopeless about the current justice system or the current government. But what, is, what if we understand that the world in which we're about to inherit has a just judge who sees all things? I remember when I was a pastor in South Africa and I sat with one of my congregation members. Uh, he was a foreigner living in South Africa. 
and, uh, and his little three-year-old daughter had visited a little friend. And it was very clear when she returned that she had been sexually abused. They couldn't prove it. And the police's hands were tied on a corrupt system. And so they had to watch as that man walks free on the, on the streets. They knew it happened. But the justice system of South Africa votes in favor <laughs> often of the criminal and they were subjected to an unjust system. What do we do in a situation like that? Well, I remember often in conversations, the words coming, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's such a great comfort to them in that situation. What about purity? The God is all pure. When we reflect upon our own sin or the sin that is around us and pervasive, when we strive for purity and holiness ourselves and we fail time and again, but we reflect upon the nature of God, the purity of who He is, that one day we will be like Christ. In the present, we struggle and strive. But what happens when we reflect upon that time in which we will be uh, given new garments and we will no longer struggle, we will no longer face the desires and the temptations that so often hinder us in our holiness? How does that comfort us in our fight against sin? Or what happens when we are faced with some of the darkest things, such as war? I think of the, um, the, the citizens right now, uh, all at war, for example. You have Ukrainian citizens right now, and stories of them coming out. What happens when they contemplate the nature of the beauty of the world in which we inherit amongst a war-torn society? You see, Christian contemplation casts our eyes on our heavenly abode. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards wrote a wonderful treatise called Heaven is a World of Love <laughs> and contemplated everything towards our internal destiny about, around the theme of love and that heaven is a world of love and the opposite of it is true, that, that, that hell then is a world of hate. And he cast it so much so that heaven itself, with its beauty and its magnificence and entering into the presence of God, once we've been cleansed and, and where true love will reign because God himself is love, the contemplation thereof is, is to call people to think about these things so that we can, especially unbelievers, can think about the world in eternal terms. It's to encourage us. And so when Paul encourages the Philippian Christians to contemplate a list of virtues which were common among the pagan moral philosophers of the day, a list that shaped the Greek and Roman world, he expects Christians to contemplation on these virtues to be different. He expects you to contemplate in the light of what God has revealed of himself. Whereas Greek and Roman philosophers contemplated virtue from the point of humanity, Christians are to contemplate virtue from the point, point of God. That's our starting place, revelation. Where Aristotle saw that ultimate happiness is a life of virtue, Thomas Aquinas, who used Aristotelian categories, saw no, that ultimate happiness consists in nothing else than the vision of the divine essence, knowing God, being unified to Him.
So, dear friends, we are to consider what is revealed about God and our heavenly citizenship of Scripture from, the pers- from this perspective. When we are contemplating what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, we do so from the fertile soil of Scripture rather than the barren wasteland of the culture around us. And in so doing, we long for and hope for heaven as we face trials in the present. But we also strive to live in accordance with our future heavenly homes, since we are citizens of heaven. And that's exactly where Paul gets to next, how we practice these things. And that's the second point, the committed Christian. The committed Christian. Verse 9, Paul shifts from contemplation to action. And here he holds himself up as an ideal to strive toward. He writes this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now, the word translated practice is the present imperative implies an ongoing commitment. One could say, commit yourselves to the habits that you have learned and received and heard in me. You could say it like that. Now, even the pagan philosopher Aristotle recognized that a happy life cannot merely remain in the contemplation of virtues, but must itself result in the practice of virtue. So, we are to move from contemplation to practice. And this is where Paul turns to next. Contemplation must necessarily result in practice. And for the Christian, our contemplation of God ought to result in the imitation of God. Now certainly, here in our text, Paul is calling the Philippians to imitate himself. So we don't want to be idolatrous and say this is the imitation of God. But Paul only does this because he himself is the one who models to the Philippian church what it's like to pursue Christ as an apostle. Remember what he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He himself is pursuing to know Christ. And he wrote this early on in the epistle, right, full on, that he wants to know Christ. And, um, and the Philippians looked, ought to look at Paul and say, we want to be like that, a man who is wholly committed to following and knowing and becoming like Christ. And so he's not ultimately holding himself as a model, he's holding Christ. And saying, pursue me as I pursue Christ. This is what it looks like for a sinful human being, a person with flaws and failures, to pursue Christ. And so we are to have people that we can look to around us, that we can follow. But if we want to become like Christ we are to first meditate and contemplate what Christ is like. And this is the point of the Philippian hymn in chapter 2, remember. Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives that glorious image of that beautiful hymn, of the humility of Christ and the doctrine that encompasses that and how Christ redeems and humbles himself, who does, appears um, in the form of God. But let's just go to chapter 2. Let each of you, verse 4, look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a point of contemplation. You ought to look at that and see what Christ was like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be like Christ. Contemplate what he's like. Andrew Murray wrote a great book called Humility. And it was all on the contemplation of this Philippian hymn, the contemplation of what Christ is like in his humble state and how we are to model after that and ourselves become humble. It's a wonderful book on the being of Christ. But this is Paul's point. It shouldn't just rest there. He says there back in chapter 2 that you are to be like that. You're not just to think about that, but you are to become that. You are to be like Christ. And so this is the point of our contemplation or to bring us to the place of action. It is not good to have a sound theology and yet our Christian practice and devotion is empty. We are to know Christ in our thinking and be like Christ in our actions, especially our actions toward others. As heavenly citizens, we are to reflect the heaven that we proclaim and represent in the present. Consider how Paul contrasts the lives of false professors from those who are truly regenerated with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 70 to 21, it's a great contrast. Another passage that Paul calls the Philippians to imitate him. He writes this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he writes, For many of whom I have often told you, now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Why? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, their actions reflected those things they contemplated most, the things of this world. They are characterized by earthly practices and even glory in it. How did they get there? These were people that once walked with the Lord. <laughs> well, they didn't participate in the contemplation of Christian virtue. They didn't take on the means of grace. And they allowed the cares of the world to swallow them up as Jesus speaks of the sower. Then Paul goes on to write, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so in contrast to those whose mind is set on earthly things, Christians are to set their minds and so be shaped in their actions by their heavenly destination. We are citizens of heaven. And so we are to be characterized by heaven as we represent heaven on earth as ambassadors of Christ. This is why Paul employed all the means of instruction they have received to shape their actions. What you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, what you have seen. You see, all of those things, all of your senses employed there in the shaping of who you are. You have learned, you have received, you have heard, you have seen. And that's exactly the purpose of what we do here Sunday in and Sunday out. Friends, the question is, do we come to church Sunday in and Sunday out to learn? Just to and to receive. We hear much, but do we observe it in the lives of godly examples around us? Do we practice these things? And 
the Reformed Pastor is a book written by Richard Baxter. It's one of my favorite books, actually. Um, shaped me a lot in pastoral ministry. Um, and it's not about Reformed doctrine. It's more about reforming the pastoral ministry. And the reason I called it Reformed Pastor is because he had preached for many years in his church, and after many conversations with some of his members, he realized that after many years of preaching good doctrine and sound theology, his people just didn't even know the rudiments of the Christian faith. He had labored Sunday in and Sunday out. And uh, Baxter's sermons, you can go read them, they're, they're incredible. They're doctrinally sound. They are rich in application. But yet, he found that his people were void of the rudiments of understanding of, of Christian practice and love. And so he decided to start visiting people in home visitations, what he majored on, and catechizing people in the homes. And so preparing them for what they will hear in the pulpit. And then he started seeing fruit, major fruit in his congregation. In fact, virtually a revival kind of fruit. People started getting excited about the preached word because he was in their homes and explained to them the doctrines that he was preaching on a Sunday. Because you know what happens. Sunday, we kind of, kind of switch off sometimes. You know, it's not always the people's fault. Sometimes it's the preacher's fault, like today. <laughs> Sometimes it is just one of those hard days to labor and people switch off. But yet, if you have been instructed on the rudiments of the Christian faith in your homes, if you know the doctrines that the guy is touching on, and if you've become awakened to that in your private devotions and practice, when you come on Sunday mornings, you will receive it in a different way. And Baxter saw that. And so he wrote this book on pastoral ministry. You see, it is only those who practice these things that strive to be shaped by a heavenly home through the contemplation of that world to come that seeks to be daily transformed into the image of Christ that the promise at the end of verse 9 belongs and the God of peace will be with you. You see, this is a promise to Christians. And you know what? We're not going to get it right and perfect. We're going to wax and wane and our feelings as well, as well as in our devotions. Life is going to get busy. But the question is, do you desire these things to be shaped as a Christian by these glories that we receive in the Word? Do you strive to cast off the distractions and the temptations of the world and and, and focus on shaping yourself and your mind according to what you have received in the revelation of God's Word. Because even in our failures, we know that we would desire to do it better. That's a Christian. A Christian is sorrowful over their failings and is encouraged when the Lord enables them to succeed. Are you pursuing these things in your life? That's the question. Because when you are, and you know what? The God of peace is with you. Now, friends, I know, as we conclude, life is busy. Busy, I mean. <laughs> our days are taken up with scheduled meetings. Our inboxes are flooded with unread emails. And daily responsibilities at work and home leave us exhausted. 
often, you know, to use a little example, I mean, you know, having kids now, you know, I'd never really experienced what it's like to have a lot of energy when you get home and you're excited and you do some things with the family and, and those little boys of mine and I put them down at night and generally I'm the one that puts them to sleep every night and I, by the time I've wrestled them to get them into their clothes, you know, and um, uh, disciplined them in order to just sit quietly and, you know, it's hard work and read in their story with all the multiple questions and buts and excuses and not wanting to go to sleep. And finally, I turn out that little man. I had energy just a moment ago. I'm exhausted. I'm done. I just want to sit and vegetate, you know. I don't care what it is. I'm going to turn on a movie. I don't want to think. I don't want to do. But it's not long before that becomes a habit. And then we either complain, which is often availed boast of how busy we are. Yet our spiritual lives will suffer when we don't discipline ourselves to spend time in contemplation on the beauties and glories of our eternal destination, on the word, on our sanctification, on those things which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, the things of the gospel. And when our contemplation of these things, and that is spending periods within the Word, suffers, so does our practice. We drift. Temptations become more alluring. And it doesn't take long for our daily lives to be shaped more by the world and its habits than by Christian graces and the habits of godly living. It doesn't take long. It feels to me that it takes a long time to get to the place where you feel, oh, I'm living a sweet devotional life of the Lord right now and it's a good time but it's, it's, it's moments you know weeks and it's gone because the Christian life is a life of discipline so how do we rectify this how do we stay committed in our contemplation how do we allow our contemplation of the word to be truly contemplation that's one thing when you're exhausted Maybe you're just reading the words of Scripture or you're doing your devotions out of duty, but you're not thinking about the things. We, we need to think about these things. We need to contemplate. We need to spend time on the Word where there's just one verse. Well, there are three things that I'll quickly put on. Firstly, use the Lord's Day well, this day here. I know sometimes it can feel like Sundays are exhausting as well. Mornings, evenings, busy times, but if you lose this day really well and you employ yourself in the contemplation of the grace of the Christian life through the Word, with God's people, in fellowship with one another, the prayers and the songs that we sing, if you use that in a conversation when you go home with one another and you seek, you work hard to build one another up, it is a very fruitful and profitable day. That's what it's intended for. Our Puritan forefathers weren't legalists. They didn't want to just get you to have a very boring day, one day in seven, so that you could uh, feel the, 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 the discipline of the Lord upon you. No, they wanted the day to be a delight. Why? And when we strive towards making a delight and encouraging one another in the Lord, we pray together. When we do those things well, you know what? We find rest in a very unique way. Uh, urged a non-Sabbatarian friend of mine to just live a season of his life 
as if he were a Sabbatarian. Just, just that. You know? And I gave him some pointers on how he could do it with his family. And he did it. He did it for two months, faithfully, because he's disciplined. He's a, he's a good, disciplined chap. It didn't make him a Sabbatarian. But it did, he does say, reflects, he reflects back on that to this day, and he says to me, those are some of the most fruitful seasons in his life. The Lord gives us one day in seven where we can come together as God's people and we can encourage one another to contemplate on the graces of the Christian life. Use it well. Secondly, schedule regular periods of meaningful contemplation of the Word during the week. Schedule it. You know, put it in the calendar because that's what we have to do. And it's going to look different for every person, but schedule periods of meaningful contemplation in the Word. And I'm not talking about devotions. That word has become so meaningless in our society. I'm talking about schedule meaningful contemplation. Put that there. I want to think about this verse throughout the entire day. And take it with you. Meditate on it. Look it up. Uh, some people, I've, what I prefer to do, what I like to do is rise up and I like to write my thoughts out about a particular passage and I like to take it with me on my phone and I can look it up during the day. And if I can't get to that tomorrow morning, you know what? I still have yesterday's meditation I can read. It's very encouraging to my soul. Spend time in meaningful contemplation and meditation on the Word. Thirdly, look for godly examples and imitate them. Find older and seasoned Christians who have walked with the Lord, who have done this, who have practiced this through the busyness of life, and spend time with them. Once a month, if you can only afford that. Maybe your whole family will get together for a meal with their families. And ask them questions. Take their practices and try it out. Spend time with someone else and do what they do. Friends, the life of a Christian is a life of contemplation. We are called to it. Out of contemplation arises action. Committed Christians will commit themselves to these principles and they will find rest for their souls because the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, grant us now this ability to take time from our busy schedules every week, week in and week out, And to consider the things that Paul has in that list. Just one a day. Perhaps today a family will go home and talk about one element, justice. What does it look like that God is just? I pray that we will contemplate, we will think, we will consider, we will meditate upon your word. I pray that we will not just memorize it, but we will know it. We will apply it. And out of this life of contemplation, we will become people who put into practice the graces of the Christian life. We ask this in Christ's name.